You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Amanda Holden. Some of you know me as the Dumpster Doggy. This is Angela Rosman. I'm Lauren Boland, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. My mom is my hero. When I was eight years old, my dad died, and my mother took on the role of both parents. She was the one who cooked and cleaned but also did the finances and was the wage earner, the professional for the household. When I made it into the city Little League baseball team, she was the one who grabbed her glove, went out, and played catch with me. Later on, when I went to college, I had a very different experience with women. My peers, I found, had suffered. Suffered from physical, sexual, and emotional abuse from men had in many ways become victims. And this was something I had never experienced. And I had a lot of trouble reconciling that vision of my mom, the hero, with that of my peers that I met in college. And this wasn't just one or two of them. This was the majority of women who I interacted with. It was only as I got older that I realized that these two visions I had of women were actually housed in the same people. There is no duality innate to women. It is a duality that society has imposed on them, that we have imposed on them. And I can't think of a better time to celebrate all that women have accomplished as well as pay homage to all they have suffered through than today, March 2021, Women's History Month. And speaking of Women's History Month, In 2020, I think many of us did a lot of self-reflection. For many, it was around personal growth, maybe career choices, personal finances, you name it. One topic that has really surfaced post-2020 is giving back. How can we make a difference in someone else's life, and is it possible to do good for others while actually making money? I'm really glad to share with you that our new partner, Equity & Help, literally, well, helps you do exactly that. Equity and Help grows your capital while helping others and shows how the simple act of investing can make a huge difference to American families. In addition to their 8-12% to average return, which is a reward unto itself, Equity and Help makes it possible to help a family in need. Over 50% of Americans spend more than half of their earnings on rent payments. So what Equity and Help has done is build an investment model to shrink this number. The mission of Equity and Help is to give families the realization of the American dream, to own a home of their own when they might otherwise have not been able to. They have already helped almost 400 families find their home. 
If you're interested in a philanthropic investment model with an average return of 8 to 12%, you can speak to a so-called philanthro investor at Equity and Help. Just visit equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Again, that's equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Amanda Holden is a writer, speaker, and investing expert who teaches women how to build wealth and is the acclaimed voice behind the Dumpster Dog blog. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us where you got that nickname, how you became the dumpster doggy? Oh my gosh, sure. Everybody always wants to know that first and foremost. So it's actually just a nickname that I acquired when I was working in investment management. And so my career right out of school was I went to work for an investment management firm and I was surrounded by men pretty much at all times. And you know, it was a really great job in a lot of ways. I learned a lot and I get to do what I do now because of that experience, but I also kind of hated it. And so I had decided it was just like a January 1st decision that I'm going to save up all my money. I'm going to quit. I'm going to start over. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to be really scrappy and I'm going to do everything that it takes to make that happen. And during this period of intense scrappiness is when I picked up the nickname Dumpster Doggy from my coworkers, from my male coworkers. And it kind of just stuck as a nickname and as a moniker that I used when I was talking about money and you know, making the best of what we are given or what we have. And yeah, and so that's kind of kind of the genesis of the name. There's a whole blog post about it on my blog if you want to go and read about all the scintillating details. <laughs> Angela Rosman is a Pacific Northwest native, mother and environmental activist, as well as a writer at Tread Lightly, Retire Early and Ecofrugals.com. Welcome back, Angela. Tell us a little uh, bit about Ecofrugals. Okay, sure. So that is a joint effort uh, between myself and Christine, who you might know as uh, the Frugosaurus. She and I actually started blogging about the same time in the summer of 2017. And we very quickly realized that we had a lot of the same perspectives on money and environment and generally in life. And we had just randomly started talking about how we both wanted to do some more like environmentally focused stuff in the blogosphere and just on a whim decided that we were going to do it together. And unfortunately that was February, 2020. And so pretty much as soon as we had launched COVID launched locally as well. And we've continued on for about a year now, but uh, I'm hopeful as at some point life settles down, we'll have some more time to work on it. But it's been a really fun project to kind of focus the environmental piece of frugality. So eco-frugal means, you know, the connection between environmental focus and money focus. And we both come from more the sustainability side than the money side, which is odd since we both really started as money bloggers, but it's definitely different to look at things when the environment comes first, not your wallet. And Lauren Boland is a trans lesbian mom who is the developer of the crowdsource financial independence and early retirement simulator Seafire Sim. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doc. It's great to be here. And I love the shock value of my Twitter bio. Thanks for saying it <laughs> perfectly. You know, what's really shocking to me is I went and was messing around with Seafire Sim last night, and it's kind of addictive. Like you start playing with it and putting in the different values and 
et cetera. And you can lose an hour or two doing that easy. I think that's one of the main points of me starting that. I think a lot of people don't really have, like, I think humans are really innately poor at judging compound interest over a long period of time and showing them that in a visual way is like, is, is very satisfying to me and it makes it clearer. And I think a lot of people see the same way. And I think there are a lot of different sort of scenarios one can envision for their future. And when you start actually playing with the math and how that can happen over 40, 50 years, then it's, it is addictive. So Amanda, let's start with the history of Women's History Month. It in fact started in 1987 by an, uh, by an act of Congress, and there is a theme each year. This year it is Valiant Women of the Vote, Refusing to be Silenced. I feel like women played a huge role in this recent presidential election. Let's talk about that a little bit. I can't even begin to start talking about this subject without thinking of Stacey Abrams. Yeah, well, Stacey Abrams is really an incredible woman and organizer. That said, I think we need to give a shout out to all of the organizers that were working tirelessly in in Georgia because Stacey Abrams was just one amongst many. But you're right. It was really women and specifically Black women that led the charge and voted in their best interest, which will ripple out to all of us. And we all then get to take some of the benefit from that. And so we owe a big debt of gratitude to everybody that works so hard to, to make it happen. Yeah. I know that many of us who were looking for change in the current governmental regime really saw what happened in places like Georgia and the voices that women had. And we're very thankful to actually move to the next level, to get people out there and vote and really speak for the nation. So I think it was it was a great example of how one person's voice can lead to many. Angela, let's compare and contrast this election to 2016. This is a big change. I mean, 2016, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, it was very contentious. Contrast that to how it feels to have a new female vice president, Kamala Harris, coming in on the 20th. So I want to step back a little bit and talk about my experience locally. I'm on my city's planning commission and I'm pretty involved in the local political scene. And about a year and a half ago, I had a planning commission meeting. So this was pre-COVID and I actually got to, you know, go to city hall and not have them on Zoom. And my husband and son had gone with me so that we could have dinner beforehand. And then they dropped me off at city hall. And one of the council members was walking into the building and I said hello to him and my son just kind of stared and looked back at me and was like, I didn't realize men could do that. He had the experience with me and some of the other women council members. And we've had a woman mayor in my city the whole time he's been alive. And he was about four years old when he realized that men could in fact run for office. So it it really gives me hope that this next generation is going to see women like Kamala Harris and just see that that's the way it is. So not our experience growing up, but 
I'm hopeful with the next generation with kids like my son, they're just, it's going to be normal. I really connect with that story because in many ways, as I said in my introduction, I was very much like your son. I grew up with this very strong woman figure in my life, my mother. And so it would have never occurred to me that women don't do things. Lauren, if you came of age during the 2016 election and watched Hillary Clinton lose, that was fairly disconcerting. Did you feel that way back then? And do you feel like we've moved forward now in 2020 with the election of Kamala Harris? I feel like I did feel like that a little bit. You know, for a little bit of context, I have two children and they're eight and five. And they, you know, were quite young when when that was happening. And it was essentially the only presidential election that they had an experience with. And I think that we really went through some sadness when we watched that that election happen. And I think my my sons were not quite sure, I think, why me and my wife were sad about it. And it wasn't until after the election that we really talked a, little, a lot about sort of the past and how not very many women have even run for a president and no one had gotten that far. And I think that they had started to understand sort of the implications of that loss. I do think on the flip side of that, that we have uh, come a long way since then. I mean, it gives me hope that Kamala Harris is in gonna, going to be in the office, but you know, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that I won't really be happy until it's not surprising that there are many women in office. I mean, we talk about this a lot about a lot about this with companies on the S&P 500. There's all these initiatives for, you know, making sure that there's one woman on the board. It's like when there are all women on the board and no one even bats an eye, then I feel like I will I will be happy. And I think that it's if anything, if we're talking about the 2016 election, it really was just a picture-perfect representation for so many women everywhere of what a gut punch it was for you to do literally everything right and have that not be enough. It's just not enough. I do want to say, too, the you know politics and local elections and that sort of thing have been in my blood since I was a kid. I helped my dad campaign for city council when I was in elementary school. And I remember when I was about nine, you know, most kids want to be a doctor or an astronaut or something. I wanted to be a senator. And uh, it's not too late, Angela. I know. (laughs) We'll see. Maybe someday. But uh, I remember saying about that age that president didn't interest me that much because I expected there would have been a number of women presidents by the time that I could actually run. And it's kind of disheartening to realize that, you know, I'm 33 in two years, I'm old enough technically to run for president and we will not have a woman president by then. I think that it's uh, massively important to note that representation matters. Representation just in the media matters. And seeing this happen, seeing Kamala Harris in office, I think will will be a big turning point. I, I really hope it will be and having people see that that is possible. Amanda, let's use politics to segue to the personal. One of the things that was so hard about the 2016 election was Donald Trump's comments that were caught on mic talking about grabbing a woman by the pussy. And I remember that this was 
a big part of the election, and yet he still won. And you wrote a blog post about sexual terror and how it costs women. And that's kind of what I was reminded of when I thought back to 2016. That is not just politics, it's personal. Tell us a little bit about that story about your bus trip to go give a talk for a financial conference. Sure. And well, first of all, thank you for reading that. I, I really appreciate that. I feel like you write something like that and you put it out into the, and really the, the only feedback you get is from other women who have also been through something similar. And you very rarely hear from the men in your lives. They don't really check on you. So I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful. So thank you. So the story was, I was living in Portland at the time and I was going up to Seattle to give a big talk it was, you know, over 200 people were in attendance, in, in attendance. I was teaching about investing. And so, you know, I was trying to get on my game during the bus ride up to, to Seattle. And without getting into too many of the gory details, basically, the man who was sitting in the seat directly across from me, he was right from the, from the moment he got onto the bus, he was staring at me. I was very uncomfortable, but I was also too uncomfortable to move or to leave or to say something. And so I just kind of grit my teeth and was like, this will be fine. And within 15 minutes, I looked over and, you know, he had his junk out of his pants. He was masturbating. He was coming. It was extremely graphic. And so I'm, I'm so sorry if anybody's listening to this and they're like, wow, that's so graphic. But uh, it's the truth of what happened. And it was very graphic and it was so alarming. You know, it, it truly set off my, my fight or flight mechanism. I sprung up, ran to the front of the bus because your immediate reaction as a woman is, oh my God, is he going to hurt me? And if he's willing to do this, what else is he willing to do? Not just to me, but to everybody on the bus, any woman on the bus. And so basically I had to have this whole Greyhound bus pulled over. You know, people on the bus started yelling at me. They were like, what are you doing? Like, what are you so upset about? And I literally had to be like, just, it's, it's bad. It happened in the back of the bus. And, and, you know, people were still very upset with me and I had to be like, he was literally jacking off to me. <laughs> so that's why we are pulled over. And so anyways, he ended up getting kicked up a bus. We made it to Seattle. You know, they asked me if I wanted to file a police report. I said no. And the primary reason that I said no was because I was on a timeline. I literally had to be in Seattle to do my job within the next few hours. And so I was kind of stuck in this this really difficult place where I was like, yeah, that would be the right thing to do. It would be the thing to do to protect women in the future. But I literally can't because I need to go and do my job. And so that was really what the article was about was, okay, so like, first of all, how convenient for abusers that I didn't step up and actually say something because I needed to stay calm get to my work on time, do my job and do it well. So that's very convenient for abusers, first of all, but also how awful for me was it that I had to then get up and perform. I put on my, put on my clown wig, put on my clown paint and pretend like nothing had happened. And I just did not do as good of a job as I could have done if I had been able to focus. And if I hadn't felt sexually terrorized on the way to doing my job. And so, you know, I just posed the question, you know, how much good work and focus and happiness is lost to sexual terror, to the fog of sexual terror. This is certainly not the only time that I've endured, you know, 
assault or abuse at the hands of men. And it's, it's so similar to so many women. And, and I just want to know what is lost to that because so much is lost to that. And that's kind of what the story was about. Not a lot of answers, just a lot of questions. Well, and that's kind of where, you know, you ask about the 2016 election and how women in particular felt through that experience. And, you know, stories like Amanda's are unfortunately not rare. And when you have the president of the United States pretty much saying that those things are okay, they're just happy. There are more of them. I was walking down the street in the middle of my little city the morning after the election, and I was catcalled via megaphone for the first time in my life. And, you know, while on a much smaller scale than what Amanda just described, it felt like immediately after the election, men got an extra pass to, you know, not just catcall out the window, but you know, pull out their megaphone and catcall out the window. And it, it feels like that's the direction we've gone over the last four years. Yeah, I feel like I have a bit of a unique perspective on this. And, you know, in my in my intro, I, you know, Doc mentioned that I'm trans. And, you know, my my lived experience as a woman, at least toward the rest of the world, has not been very long and has been covered by most of, uh, of a pandemic. So I have not been out and about as much to experience those things, but I've already seen the change online. I've already seen the change in the harassment and the pictures that I get from people online. And, you know, it, it is awful. It has affected me quite a bit. And I haven't even had an in-person sort of assault or abuse. And I can totally relate to that already. It's, it's, it's interesting to see, I guess, both sides of it from, from some, some sort of, yeah. <laughs> Amanda, I generically would call this the creepy guy phenomenon. And that mirrors exactly what I experienced when I went to college. And I had trouble finding a single woman who hadn't dealt with a creepy guy, not just once, but multiple times in their lives. I think the upshoot of the 2016 election, at least somewhat, was the Me Too movement. How do you feel that did in resolving some of these issues or at least bringing them to light? Oh, well, you know, the Me Too movement was very wonderful in bringing some of these issues to the light for what felt like a brief moment in time. But I think we're far from having any sort of resolution to the matter whatsoever. It seems that what we see happen continually time and time again is that these issues are brought to light, bad men are called out, and really there's never any sort of justice. And so there's not justice for women. There is vi- there's constant victim blaming. I mean, just a constant, like, let me even give you just like a small example. So separate from the incident we talked about earlier, I was physically assaulted and I had an attempted robbery in the streets of New York at the beginning of last year. And so it was fine. You know, he, he, he was young and I think just opportunistic. And I was a woman walking alone in the streets at night. And I mentioned it on Twitter and the number of men who came back at me with, 
essentially blaming me for, for the incident. And, and they don't think that that's what they're doing. But when you tell me that what I need to do is learn self-defense, when I tell you about me getting attacked on the street, you're really not getting to the core of the issue. The core of the issue is we have got to figure out a way to make men less violent towards women. And that's really not, that's not what we're getting at. And that's not what's happening. Lauren, this makes me think a lot about that transition you just described. I'm going to ask you a black and white question, which is, I'm sure, nothing close to black and white. But you've now made this transition. Has this made you feel more empowered or more vulnerable? It certainly made me feel more vulnerable. I do feel like I have a little more insight into into certain things, but... For instance, I think what Amanda just described is a perfect example. And I, you know, I hesitate to use this word because I feel like it's lately on the internet, it's been sort of a catchphrase, but I, I do feel like there's a, a very pronounced lack of empathy in men and essentially how they are raised. They're raised in general as this is a stereotype and it's not hundred percent, not all men, all that. But most men are raised to, one, not necessarily care about other people's feelings. Two, they're also not necessarily to care about their own feelings. And three, they chastise each other if one starts to care about other people's feelings. And it creates this really vicious cycle about like detaching themselves from how other people feel. I really think that that plays a lot into assault and how they treat women and sort of my own experience changing from being seen as a man in society and talking and engaging with people to talking and engaging as people and having them see me as a woman. It's been night and day. I mean, the way women treat each other is way like far and beyond a more, more of a sisterhood. I mean, I, I feel like the empathy that flows between friendships of women and even just total strangers is again, a night and day thing. Well, and I think that we're all kind of getting to the same idea, which is sexual assault is a men's issue. It's really a men's issue. It's not a women's issue, but we're talking about it as if it's a women's issue. And until we make real changes with how we are raising our boys and whether or not men are held accountable for their actions, then nothing's going to happen. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, you know, again, with my own perspective, I have two boys. And I think me and my wife are trying real hard to make sure to not stigmatize feeling feelings, not stigmatize the idea that other people can feel feelings and helping each other. Um, I think that those things seem really simple when you say it out loud, but I think that it is not as common. I, I'm definitely having those same experiences too with, you know, I have a son as well. And, and when I was pregnant, I really didn't have a, an opinion if I wanted a boy or a girl other than a little bit of sadness that I won't have a softball player because I played softball through college. Maybe we need to move to Australia where men's softball is a bigger deal, but you know, it feels heavier in a way to be raising a little boy because it feels like the stakes are higher in a way that it's more important to make sure that he is kind 
and empathetic and courageous and, you know, making sure that I, I raise him so he's not the kind of man that feels like it's okay for others to assault women or to tell a woman that she just needs to get better at defending herself. And I mean, it just feels like the level of what I need to do to make sure that he grows up to be a strong, caring, kind man is, is really heavy. Well, first of all, Angela and Lauren, thank you for raising strong feminist boys. Yay. We love to see it. But it, it really is, is so imp- important. Clearly, like the boys are not all right. <laughs> and, we, and we need to do something about it. I think that there's another element here. Teaching them about feelings is, is very important. And I haven't done it myself. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking out of my butt here. But it also seems like we need to give men somewhere to find better community. Like Lauren said, women have just kind of naturally a really strong sense of community. You know, other certain groups that have been pushed to the margins of society have really strong communities. They have culture. And I think if we're being honest, men and in particular white men don't have community and culture for which they can latch onto. And that leaves them flailing. As of this recording, just two days ago was the attempted coup at the Capitol building. And what we saw, or at least what I saw, my version of events was this is a lot of white men who are desperate to belong to something. And so we need to talk about that as well. In the first half of the show, Amanda, Lauren, Angela, and I discuss politics and Women's History Month. After the break, we tackle the pandemic. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Where do you go to learn the newest information about financial independence? Where do you send people when they are newly interested in the movement? Well, I go to fiology.com. That's F-I-O-L-O-G-Y.com. My friend David Boyer started this site to help people connect with the financial independence movement. There you can go and sign up for his 52 Phiology lessons and receive one in your inbox every week. You can also download his free Phiology workbook. There is tons of great information here about the financial independence community, 
as well as how you can become connected to the movement. Check them out. It's phiology.com. That's F-I-O-L-O-G-Y.com. And join the financial independence community. Amanda, it, it's funny. It gives me complicated feelings when you say that. And I think about it in very similar ways that I think about the conversation I have with people of color about what white men need. And you said many times there, we. And sometimes I wonder if white males, me included, are really looking for someone else to solve our problems. Like, if someone is abusing you, yes, you could educate them on how not to be an abuser, but on some level, that person has to self-reflect, look at themselves and their communities, and take some responsibility for fixing them, fixing these things among themselves, for having these conversations with their own communities and trying to get their act together. It's really hard to take someone who is the recipient of bad behavior and then put the pressure on them to fix the person who's actually doing that bad behavior. What I found in my childhood, what you guys are all talking about is that we can affect things at home by bringing up and teaching boys how to behave around women, what's acceptable, what isn't acceptable. But I think that also misses the systemic changes that need to take place. Systemically, we've set up our society in such a way that women aren't always given a fair shake. Lauren, I think a lot about the workplace. We all know about the gender pay gap. Do you feel like things are moving in the right direction in the workplace when it comes to women and equity? I would be remiss to start my response without saying that I have benefited greatly from essentially perceived cis male privilege in the workplace. I'm 18, what year is it? 18 years into my career and, you know, starting off on that platform, I will say that I don't think we've gotten very far. I don't. I think that there's a lot of perceived advancements in that area. And I, I see lots of folks trying to munge the numbers and display them in a way that we are improving. But I think that there are a lot of things outside of the numbers that affect sort of the outcome of the, the gender pay gap. And I mean, things like who is more likely to leave their job and help their family, who is more likely to switch to part-time to help their family. I think we're seeing a ton of that right now, you know, still in this country in the midst of COVID. There is a massive amount of people that women that are leaving the workplace because someone needs to come home and take care of children, take care of parents, um, take care of their house. And I think that the the ramifications of that long term we we're just not going to know i mean it's it's incredible like lost wages in general lost career opportunities and loss of sort of long term retirement uh, opportunities well and that's where we really do need to talk about the last year and covid if you had asked us this question in late 2019 i would have been a lot more hopeful 
But if you look at the data of just like the millions of women that have dropped out of the workforce through COVID, it's just the disparity is really, really bad. I know a number of women personally who have left or cut down to part very part-time. I have not heard of a single man do the same. I, I, you know, I know folks who have stay-at-home dads and that sort of thing, but as far as new men leaving the workforce, I honestly haven't heard it. I feel very, very fortunate that we have a very good setup for our childcare situation with my son. Fortunately, unfortunately, our roommate who's lived with us for more than eight years lost his job in the summer because he's an aerospace machinist and, you know, Boeing hasn't done terribly well lately, but he's picked up the slack of taking our son for a full day every week. And he, he helps do the homeschool and that sort of thing. And then I am 80% time. I used to work five days a week, short hours, but now I work four days a week so that I have a day a week to do homeschool and focus on my son. And then my husband also cut his work hours. So he also now works four days a week. So he has equally shared the burden with me there. And then we do have some family help part-times during the day, but you know, outside and masked, it it's not really the same. So I still end up with my son at home while I'm working some because my job is one that can be done at home and my husband's can't. But, you know, most women don't have that situation. And I, I think if we didn't have the family and roommate support that we have, and if we didn't have jobs that were flexible in allowing us to reduce our hours, it would have just been me full time trying to work from home with my son at home, trying to homeschool him. So I, I don't know if it's just my situation or there might be more of that, but the types of jobs that women have tend to be ones where you can attempt to work from home with a child and it doesn't work well. So I don't know, there's just, this last year has been just brutal when it comes to women in the workforce and the long-term expectation that women are the ones to drop out. And, you know, if something's got to give, it's the woman that gives. And so to Angela's point, you know, I think that the, the conversation that needs to be had is the lack of childcare, not as a personal failing on the behalf of women, but as a structural macroeconomic problem. And we have enough anecdotal evidence, of course, all of my, I'm 35, all of my friends have, have babies and they're trying to work and they are miserable. We also have the data to know that, that this is a she session and that women are going to bear the brunt of this for probably decades to come. Probably the most poignant, I guess it was a headline for an article, but it was also the thesis of the article was essentially other countries have a social safety net the United States has women. And so women, when it all, when, when it all goes to hell in a handbasket, women are the ones that have to be there and, and pick up all the pieces. And so if we are interested in true economic equality and justice in this country, which frankly, I'm not sure that we're really ready for that, then we have to be talking about legislative solutions. 
legislative solutions to the pay gap, to maternity leave, to affordable childcare, and so on. Because for so long as our current economic model allows this ever-expanding chasm between the wealthy and the poor, then women will always be at the poorest end of that spectrum. Because Capitalism has absolutely no problem exploiting the lack of legislative support for women who have children in this country. And so, again, for as long as women can't access maternity leave, there's no solution for affordable child care. The majority of minimum wage workers are, are, are women. There's no real protection against the discrimination of, of women and mothers in the workforce. Then women will always be pushed to the margins. Women get really no protection for doing this big other thing, this other job, that quite literally (laughs) the future of humanity and our economic system depend on. And so unless we're talking about clear-cut legislative and dramatic solutions to many of the, the, the ways in which women are disenfranchised in this economy, then we will not have a solution. Me teaching women how to invest, which what that's my job, that will not solve this problem. I think that was really well said, Amanda. And I just want to like come back full circle and say that almost all of those things that you mentioned are hard to put into numbers that people are showing for this pay gap. I think that it's very easy to make it look like we're, we're having progress when those things don't exist. We're not actually having progress. Well, and you can't teach women to invest if they don't have the money to. I mean, exactly. If if you have a hundred bucks a month left over to invest, sure, that's wonderful. But it's not going to protect you from poverty uh, when you're a senior. I want to talk about this idea of how women invest, but first a comment. Jean Shatsky first used the term she session, at least on this podcast. It was the first time I heard it. But the quickest way to find out who doesn't have equity in any society is see who stumbles when tragedy happens. And that's exactly what's happened with COVID. If we have any doubt who is not getting equality and equity in our society, all we have to say is who is having trouble with COVID? Who's having trouble with this recession? Those parts of the population are the ones who aren't being supported to the level that everyone else is. And I think it's a very clear line in the sand that we have to see and listen to. Amanda, you've done a lot of talking in your blog about the differences in ways that men and women invest. And I'm going to embarrass you here by quoting something you wrote, because I just think it's wonderful. You said, I know how it is to be a woman to feel like Play-Doh being squished through a squeeze and sculpt dough machine, but also to feel left out of and intimidated by conversations historically reserved for humans who look like Alec Baldwin. Talk to me about that quote. You were you were using that, I believe, in a blog post about how deferring your financial well-being to a man may actually cost you a lot of dollars in the end. Yeah. And so it, what we're seeing with even millennial women, even wealthy millennial millennial women, and this study that I'm quoting is specific to women in heterosexual relationships with men um, who are married to men, they tend to defer the investment planning to the man in the relationship. And so I, I believe that what I was trying to get across in that particular article was like, hey, ladies, I know that we are so tired 
so tired and so busy and we're trying to do so much. And if your dude wants to help you with something, a single chore, if he's going to rake some leaves or grill some meats or take care of the investments, then we are going to let him because women are tired. But I'm asking you, woman to woman, to please not let investing for the long term and understanding your money be the thing that you outsource. Have it be something that you both work on together. I want two heads. Two heads are better than one. Diversification of ideas. Also, just because you're married to somebody that that happens to identify as a man doesn't mean he's better at investing than you. Men are not preternaturally better at investing. And so it's just just kind of a rally cry to get women to take charge and consider learning about this and, and doing some of this for their own futures. Angela, that's something you talk a lot about on your blog too. You have Women's Personal Finance Wednesdays. Tell me how that came about. So that is my weekly roundup to amplify women talking about money. But where it came from really is early on in my blogging career, I wrote Meet the Women of the Financial Independence Movement. And it's kind of wild to think about that, you know, it it's been almost three years since that was published. By the time this episode airs, it will have been more than three years ago. And I was reading a blog from a very popular male fire blogger who had his like annual blog roll of all of his favorite fire bloggers. And one was a woman. And one of the comments was like, well, I'd love to read some more women bloggers. Can you give me some ideas? And the response was one more blogger. And while I was a new blogger at the time, I started reading fire and debt freedom blogs back in 2010. And some of the first blogs I read were written by women. So I felt like, well, if that's what the expectation is, well, then I'm going to give you a long list of women that are writing about money. And from that experience, I realized that there was also not a community where women could gather and talk. And the, the need was really, really great. And so with that, I created the Women's Personal Finance Facebook page which now has over 20,000 members. And it's pretty much one of the only reasons why I still stick around on Facebook. And it's, it's a really wonderful place to be. And it's, it's really wonderful. And it's specifically women's personal finance, not women on fire. As much as early on, some of the founding members really wanted it to be a fire group. I wanted it to be a personal finance group because I wanted it to be available to all women, whether they had already retired early 10 years ago and had this money thing all figured out, or the women that come to the group and say, hey, can you explain to me what a 401k is? I have never put a dollar in, but I'm ready. Can you, can you tell me how to get started? And so it feels just as important for those women to be in the group than the ones that have it all figured out. Lauren, you've worked in and out of personal finance. You created Seafire Sim. Is there a major difference in how men and women manage money and how men and women invest? I think Amanda touched on a pretty good point that I think, you know, in general, society does seem to think that men um, are better at controlling finances and maybe they should be the one doing it. And I, 
you know, I think that a lot of history has sort of pushed that narrative. Again, I'm going to go back to my kids. My kids are now eight and five. And we mentioned to them sometime randomly at dinner table about credit cards and how a woman couldn't get a credit card until the late 70s without, and even so it had to be with their husband's permission. And my eight-year-old son was very confused by the statement. Just like, why? Like, why is that a thing? Like, and it was very hard to explain it to him. And I, you know, in, in my experience, people that interact with my site, it is becoming um, more and more women focused. It's still a lot of men. Most of the people that reach out to me for different issues or like try to add on different features are oftentimes men. I, I try to make it a really big point to make this sort of a crowdsourcing situation. I'm a very social person in general. And back in 2013, when I started this thing, there were you know only a few retirement calculators out there. And most of the time, someone would just put it up there and disappear. And I, I really enjoy talking to other people and seeing what their, what their use cases are and what they want out of money and in the long term. We talk about are men better at investing in this, you know, knee jerk, you know, it's the man that does it. In my family, particularly, my my husband's fine with money. He can save his money. And, you know, when we get together, granted, we were we were 21 when we got married, but the only debt he'd ever had was a car loan, which he paid off while he was deployed. And otherwise he had a positive net worth and I just graduated college. So I had a negative one, but had I let him do the money thing for us, we would have a very large savings account in a national bank earning 0.05% interest. And we would have no credit cards and no credit. And we probably wouldn't own our home and we wouldn't have the retirement funds that we have. He would have kept us swimming, but man, there has not been a point in our relationship where there was the expectation that he was going to control the money. From early on, I think the expectation was also that I would always be the one to have a larger income. And I realized that that is somehow still a thing, that there are men that are insecure about women earning more money, which to me makes absolutely no sense. Why would you not want more money in your relationship? But I married a a Marine who is a very much a man's man, but there has never been a point in a relationship where he has felt emasculated by me being the one controlling our finances and me being the one bringing in a larger income. So I, there's no automatic, just because he's a dude, that this is something that should be hard. And so I'm only going to challenge you on that, Angela, a little bit, because I've been challenging myself on this idea, because I have a very knee-jerk reaction to when I hear the, the, the same stats as, as the ones that you're quoting about men not being able to handle it when their lady makes more money than they do. And my initial reaction is, that is so lame. <laughs> like, we're all on the same, we're on the same team here. Get your shit together. Come on, guys. But the more empathetic side of me in trying to to really understand where is this coming from, again, back to how are we raising our boys? We're raising our boys to believe that they they have to be the ones 
to care for their families. And if they, if they're not able to do that, then it is emasculating to them. And so something culturally has to change there as well, because just like what is happening in your family, Angela, where instead of adhering to traditional gender roles, what you're doing is just what you're good at, which is the way that it should be. Unfortunately, that's just not the ethos of our culture in the United States of America. Yeah. And I think in some ways we almost have to change the way in which we look at words like masculine and emasculating, you know, because I grew up in a woman centered household, I don't know if I grew up with those common held beliefs of what makes a man, a man. So for me, things like physical strength were never nearly as important as emotional strength or being there for your family. So when I think about what makes me feel like a man in my house, in my household, it's being there emotionally for my family when they need me. It's kind of fulfilling those roles. It is true that making money does help me feel like a man in some ways, but it's more the fact that I'm supporting and being there for my family, not that I'm bringing in a specific paycheck. But I think that we all have to look at, at what we see as masculine and maybe redefine what that means in 2021. Well, and that's, I was having a conversation with one of my friends yesterday and she and I both have only children both boys. And we got into a conversation yesterday about how she was saying some of his traits she thought were of him being an only child. And I really pushed back on that because in the United States, having an only child is still like a weird stigma uh, in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of traits that are portrayed as being only child traits. And really, you know, I'm the oldest of four. You, you could probably label plenty of traits of mine to be only children traits. And I think that has a lot to do with also the masculine and masculine, like what, what labels do we put on people? And really it's, who is this person? Like their, their, you know, self is going to really control that more than do they identify as male or female? Are they an only child? Are they one of seven? Did they grow up with a two-parent household? Did, did they grow up with their grandparents? Did they grow up in foster? There are so many different pieces to our identity and to try and pigeonhole, well, that's an only trial, child trait or that's a male trait really limits us, I think, as, as people. But do you not think that children are being socialized into having male traits or female traits? Oh, I do. And I think that's also with like saying, oh, well, that's an only child trait. I think it then perpetuates. Well, of course they don't want to share their toys because they're only children. Not, oh, of course they don't want to share their toys because they're four. Because they're greedy. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I I mean, it's it's one of those weird things. It's like, how do you how do you change that at a community-wide level? I mean, I'm doing what I can to make that change within my own sphere of influence, but I can't control the kids that live in New Jersey that I've never met. And I don't know their parents and their social situation. And when you really think about it, when you step back, the fact that just even in the United States alone is 350 million people trying to make huge, massive shifts is it's really overwhelming sometimes. Because when you realize how hard it is to just like make 
conscious choices to guide your own life and the lives of people that you're connected to. It's, it's really big to try and think about it at a nationwide global level. It is really overwhelming. And as like you can imagine, I've thought about gender quite a bit. I mean, my entire life and, you know, it, it boils down to, I, I really do think it's, it's frankly just silly that certain emotions or certain behaviors for children are, are being sort of pushed on them as a specific gender. And I think it hurts everybody. I want to hope that as we go along and more and more people are doing this at a small level, that eventually there will be just a tidal wave of change and, you know, things will sort of rewrite themselves. But, you know, sometimes I'm a pessimist and I, I do feel like large uh, societal change for how people behave is really, really difficult. I don't know what the answer is, but I agree with almost everything you say. We're talking Women's History Month 2021. As I talked about in my introduction, I think there is a duality. We celebrate the strength of women, and yet some parts of our society are truly abusive. And it's really easy to attribute that duality to something that's innate to women. But actually, it speaks more of the society we've created than the reality of who women are as individuals. I feel privileged to have this conversation with you guys. I think it's a conversation we keep, I think it's a conversation we need to keep on having so that we can improve, so that we can allow people to shine and achieve and not hold them back as a society. COVID has definitely opened our eyes, as has this recession, as has our current election and politics. I think we can do better. And having these type of conversations is a good way to start. I'd like to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Amanda, let's start with you. What is going on and where can we find you on the internet if we want to know more? Sure. So I'll be up to my old shenanigans over at dumpster.doggy on Instagram. Even though I'm profoundly old for TikTok. I'm going to be try to be on TikTok this year. So you can, you can find me there at dumpster.doggy for free investing education. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, which is continuing to teach women to invest through my business, which is called invested development. So come and find me. Lauren, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? You can find me at basically my website or Twitter. My website is cfiresim.com. I don't know where I was when I was trying to brand that site because I feel like it's an awful name, but I'm stuck with it and I will continue to improve my retirement calculator and hope that people can see the future better, see what they can do in the long-term future. And I am also really pushing hard on Twitter to sort of build community. I, again, I'm very social. I love to see the communities being built out there. And I'm hoping to add on to it. Seafire Sim, Lauren, you may not like the name, but it is a wonderful product. The only thing I can say is if you go there, just expect to spend a little time because once you get started, it's hard to stop plugging in different numbers and seeing how it affects your retirement date and amount of money you'll have left. Angela, tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Well, you cannot find me on TikTok. I, I, 
I made a couple of videos and it is just way too much effort. And I will um, leave that to other folks. I think maybe if I was doing this as my full-time job, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd dive more into TikTok, but for a blogging, you know, online situation for me, that's mostly just because I want to do it and not make a lot of money. You'd have to pay me a lot of money to, to mess with TikTok. <laughs> As, and you can find me at treadlightlyretireearly.com. I am also on Twitter a lot, like Lauren. It is a fabulous place for community, as is my women's personal finance group on Facebook. And by the time this airs in March, there should be some more exciting news on that front that I cannot quite share yet. But Doc, maybe before this airs, you and I can talk about what should be public knowledge by the time this airs. Ooh, you got me excited now. <laughs> this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Amanda Holden, Lauren Boland, and Angela Rosman. That's a wrap. So I am so excited to welcome onto the show, Erica Young. She has been on before, What's Up Next and Earn and Invest. She is the force behind TaylorMade Budgets, and we are going to talk about Women's History Month, March 1st. First and foremost, Erica, happy Women's History Month. Thank you. It is exciting to feel like we can celebrate all month and just find ways to amplify these voices. So thanks. Glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about Women's History Month and especially what this is like for women of color each Women's History Month has a theme. I don't think I always remembered or always realized that. But this year, the theme is Valiant Women of the Vote Refusing to be Silenced. Mm -hmm. Gives you a pause, doesn't it? Because it? it's been such a big year. It does. And I, I feel like that is just in response to how women of color have showed up in 2020. And it is, it's, it's our time. It's what I tell my girls, my daughters, it's, it's our time. It is time for you to stand up, to rise up and to make sure that your voice in all ways is heard. So that's very appropriate. I think the message of 2020 and 2021 is exactly what you said. As a woman of color, I really think that this has been a sentinel moment in our history. People don't realize this year for the 2020 elections had the highest number of women of color candidates mm -hmm. for both state and national legislature. So think about that. You had more women of color running for office than ever before. Right. It's amazing. And I think that people really showed up. Women have stepped up to the plate. We are in a women in general are we're finding our voice. We're finding out what is really important to not just our nation, but our communities and everywhere that we go. And I think that all of the events of 2020 had lots of black females fed up. You know, um, I think that there's a lot of people who paid the, paved the way. I believe that there's a lot of people who said we're not taking no for an answer. There's a lot of strength that we have found through being told no in the past. And I think that in 2020, lots of women were saying enough is enough. It's, it's time. And so and there's also strength in numbers. When you see someone who looks like you doing what you want to do, you say, I can too. And I think that there is a momentum that had been brewing 
in Black female circles where that was true, not just in politics, but also in business. And so um, I think that explosion really began to occur second half of 2020, for sure. I should mention just not just more women of color ran, but we have more women of color in Congress now than ever before. I believe the number was 51. You said something interesting there. You said that not just in politics, but also in business, we can't ignore that there was a lot of social upheaval in 2020, also with George Floyd and the protests. Right. Do you think this created the perfect storm for this political movement of women of color? I think yes, but I also think that it was a perfect storm because of the pandemic um the way that we were all forced to be at home and cooped up and i think that women led the charge to stand up for those that we care for this is what we do i mean honestly this was nothing new it's just that we took to the streets and um and so i think that standing up the suffrage movement for instance like women of color were in the suffrage movement, wanting to make sure that all women could vote, even though Black women didn't get the right to vote for several decades later. And so when you think about the fact that we are always in the fight to make certain that um, our voices are heard and that we have equal rights in all areas, it doesn't surprise me that we led the charges in 2020 as well for justice, for political upheaval, um, and in business. I mean, just knowing that the first, this was in 2021, however, but the first Black female CEO of Fortune 500 company was named just in January. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic to see that we're successful in our endeavors and in all the hard work, I feel like it's paying off. And so that's, that's what it has meant to me in the last year. I know it sounds like almost a silly question, but it's one in the same battle in a sense, right? Whether you're yeah. talking about the politics mm-hmm. or you're talking about the business, yeah. social, political rights, it all goes together. It absolutely does. I mean, if we make advancements in one, then many more women feel like we can make advancements in other things. And so just simply knowing that I can tell my girls, my daughters, literally, you can do anything because the glass ceiling has been shattered by Kamala Harris for all women. That doesn't mean only in the political space. It means that if she can do this, you can do anything. And that is an important message for all women of color. I want to talk about Kamala Harris in a moment, but before I do, you know, I've seen it said in articles that women of color are now the largest voting block. And of course, that brings to mind people like Stacey Abrams, who are really in the community and organizing. I think if you were a politician and you were ignoring that populace, Stacey Abrams must have opened your eyes Absolutely. just what happened in Georgia, not only with the political elections, with the presidential elections, mm-hmm. but now with Congress, too. Absolutely. I was going to mention Stacey Abrams because I believe that um, she really became the force of reckoning. I believe that she's a big reason why Black females felt they could. There's something to be said for the fact that her feet, like the things that she's doing on the ground in the last year, three years, even since her um, gubernatorial race, 
it, it has made a tremendous difference in this particular um, presidential election. And to have her on the ground doing all of that grassroots effort has made a, a difference, not just, like I said, for the presidential election, but for many different elections. Women felt they could because she did. And that is huge. Even though she didn't win that race, her fight was what caused other women to believe they could. And that I'm thankful for. So no fight, even if you don't win it, no fight is without the rewards in some ways. And so I'm I'm thankful for her really being open and forthright about all that she went through as well. Yeah, it's actually pretty stunning the fact that she lost her own race and mm-hmm. yet through organizing had such an impact mm-hmm. really on the national stage the way she did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I have actually said this to people that I think it was wise for her to stay in that vein and not actually be the vice presidential nominee. We need her on the ground. I mean, maybe in the future, I, we would love it. But, <laughs> but right now, it has been pivotal and critical for her to be doing all the work that she is because without her, I mean, there's so much more work to be done, to be honest, to be fair. There's so much more to be done. But the fact that she has, in the pandemic, single-handedly, she is the person we turn to when we think about fair races and all people being able to have access to vote. And so hopefully that continues to improve because we still do have a long way to go. It's an interesting dichotomy because we have people like Kamala Harris who are out front and center taking on this huge political role. But just as important, maybe even more important, Mm -hmm. are those people who are playing the behind the scenes roles who are stepping up every day and organizing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, no role is without its importance. Um, A couple of years ago, some girlfriends and I, we got together and we started a community group. And it's just women talking about hard conversations. It started with race. And lots of the times it does get to other racial topics, but it gets political, um, social. We've gotten into our school system and discussed lots of different things. And the whole point is for a mixed group, not a Black women's group, but a mixed group of women in the suburbs where it is it can be racially charging that we're coming together and learning how to dialogue and have conversation. And in that way, I feel like that too is helping those around me and those that my kids see um, to know that change is possible, even in our smaller spheres of influence as well. And if we don't do what we can, we won't have what we need. So I'm doing what I can in my community, just like, you know, on bigger scales, the women we've already discussed have been doing their part too. Let's transition to discuss Madam Vice President Kamala Harris. I want to talk about that moniker, but before I do, what did it feel like when you found out that Biden and Harris won, knowing that there'd be a woman of color in the White House? I'm getting chills right now, and I definitely cried, and I called my teenager. Well, she's 21 now. Um, I called her, and... um, And I I didn't think that that kind of emotion was going to come. I'm not a super political person. Like, I don't like to get super emotional about it. But I think the whole moment of change, the whole moment of knowing that what she did made it possible for all women. And this, it wasn't just that she's a Black female. It was that that ceiling 
was broken for every woman and that she made it possible, visible and achievable for so many other people. And so that was, I definitely shed tears. (laughs) Um, And you don't have to like all of her politics or, you know, Biden's politics to understand that it was monumental. And um, for that moment, it was, it was a lot. I didn't think I was going to have as emotion, as much emotion as I did, but it was there. And I think very warranted. The timing in our history was so interesting too, because I know that many had such great pride when President Obama was elected. Yeah. To have a person of color in office, it was time. And then to follow that with the election of Hillary Clinton, all the excitement and the letdown when she lost, it was such an interesting time for Kamala Harris to step up and then to be elected. Yeah. Did it feel different for you? Can you compare and contrast a little the difference between when Obama was elected and when Harris was elected? I absolutely. So it was kind of the the weird thing about it is that I definitely cried less when Obama was elected. I think that's interesting. Um, But I think the reason is because the last four years have been so difficult and to without getting into all of the reasons why black people felt even more oppressed than prior to President Obama's inauguration, right? Like we felt like we had gone back several steps in the last four years. We felt unheard. We definitely felt like our voices were not needed, that we were not cared for. So many things went back in reverse in the last four years. And so there was just this sigh of relief amongst the community that said, okay, so not only is she here for us, but we believe that Biden is actually going to step up and bring a sense of calm and peace in our nation that is needed right now. And so the division that we had had at such a heightened point is the other part of that emotion is that I want to feel like I live in a safe place. And there were lots of times when I just was not sure was today a safe day to go out of the home. And that cannot it should not be the way that we think all of us every american should feel safe and that is it it was it was in jeopardy yeah and i think there was a letdown after the obamas left the white house regardless of who came in after them because they were very much seen as the first couple yeah so you had also michelle obama who really felt almost like an elected politician although Mm -hmm. she wasn't and i think for many people there was a high coming off that time yeah um yeah absolutely i think that and i think that in and of itself was something that many African-Americans, you know, wanted to, which it was like a compliment to say, you're just like the Obamas or, you know, um, okay, Mama Michelle, there would be these terms that were said amongst us um, because they were definitely seen in a good light. There was no, the, you know, the controversial, controversial things that happened in his presidency had to do with very small things. I mean, to be honest with you. And so when you think about, the pedestal that I will say we did put them on, on, on that, that was definitely different when they left. And so um, it was challenging. That shift was challenging. And I don't think people really recovered, to be honest with you. 
So before I had made a point of saying, Madam Vice President, you did a Facebook <laughs> post about the importance of that word. Tell us why it's important and what it means to you. Yeah, Madam Vice. I mean, it is first. This is the first time we get a chance to say it. I honestly really love hearing the respect that is there when you say madam. Um, my daughter has been president of her class for a few years. And so, you know, they, she continues to get reelected. And so um, they call her madam, you know, president and madam prez. And I, it is, it's a term of endearment, but it is also respect. I, I just, I think that that is what is due in that office. And then also, I just love that, We've got a first gentleman. Like, I just love that there is a strong man who is not behind her, but beside her and who is in support of where she is and what she's doing. And I think that our nation needs to see that as well. Not every um, person in leadership needs to be male. There can be a female in leadership and a male beside her that has helped her to get that to that spot. And I think that that is something we need to see. We, we, I love it when we're able to turn the tables and it makes people think about how do we handle this, this newness, right? This new way of being. And I think that that is awesome. So yeah, she deserves a title and we need to say it. <laughs> Up into this point, we've really been talking with pride about women of color mm-hmm. and the political strides that occurred in the last year, year and a half. The other side of our history right now is this COVID pandemic, which has really hit people of color in general Mm -hmm. and women of color, even I could say worse. Talk about what it's been like watching this pandemic and how it's affected society over the last year as a person of color. Yeah. Um, I will start with saying that I'm thankful it hasn't devastated my personal family. We have had family members, elderly members who have had COVID. I have a a cousin whose mother did pass away from COVID, but no one super close in our immediate sphere, which is good. Very few people in our family have actually had COVID. So that's awesome. But it's scary because I was on a Zoom call with six of my good friends and every single one of us, all of us are Black females, and every single one of us have had someone in our family who has had COVID and been in the hospital with it. All six of us. We're not playing games when we say it's hit our, our community hard. Um, and even so far is to say that one of those ladies lost, she knew she could rattle off names of nearly 10 people who have passed away friends and family. And so when you think about, is this true? Is this really happening in the Black community? Yes. Do we need to take greater precautions? Yes, we are. And has it affected? The thing that I think about is the dynamic at home is changing because we are all at home. And there's a lot of people who can't do their jobs at home. There are African-Americans, women in particular, are the ones who are out there, who are nurses, who are on the front lines, who are potentially in the restaurants and things of that nature. And so when you think about our risk factor is up because of our location and our occupation. And then also 
you know, when you think about the medical needs and our pre-existing conditions and things like that, it everything is amplified. And so I'm concerned that the strides that we have made at home in terms of our incomes, in terms of who is doing the caregiving, women are having to take way more responsibility. And some of them are taking a step back from positions. And so what I'm encouraging women to do is to get out there and start at-home businesses or start rethinking how they can generate income and take care of their household um, if that is their primary job function, because the strides that we made in advancing women in the workplace and in business could be halted, paused, or going backwards. And that's a big concern to me due to COVID. And we're, it's going to take a while, even with the vaccine on the horizon and, and lots of people getting it now, it's going to take a while to heal this. So I just don't want us to lose the momentum that we have in terms of our income and in terms of, you know, employability. Those are the things that I, I think about. There's so many things to touch upon just in what you said. Before we do, I want to make the point that, at least in my opinion, if you want to look at who's really suffering inequities in any society, mm-hmm. all you have to do is see what happens when you have a systemic tragedy. Yep. Who is suffering the most? Those are usually the people who are facing the greatest inequity women of color are losing their jobs or have lost their jobs Mm -hmm. at a faster rate and compare and contrast that to the fact that also women of color are often the higher salary makers in a Mm -hmm. family. Yes. Or the only income makers in the household. And so that's the challenge. Um, I'm thankful that that is not my experience, but I am not unaware of the fact that there's so many families that have been affected in this way. I mean, just the simple fact that students, you know, needing to be at home and having access to computers and internet and all of that, on top of the fact that a woman has to figure out how to still get to work so she can put food on the table um, or do something um, from home if she has lost her job. And um, so it is, it's a tough position. And financially speaking, um, as a people, it's setting us all back and we just don't know how how far back it is. It, it's just a challenge. And I think, you know, we can't forget about the caregiving role because the caregiving role, especially for women of color, is so huge, whether it be children or parents or other mm-hmm. relatives. They have the dual burden of often being the primary wage earner as well as the primary caretaker. Right. This pandemic has affected so many ways that we do things because kids are home. So they need extra care Yep, and other family members still need to be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think about this in terms of if it were us, when I was coming up, my mother was a single um, parent and there was a time when she worked an hour away. Um, So driving an hour to work and then home Um, and you know, being at home, being a latchkey kid, that kind of thing. Like, how does that work now? It just doesn't, or not having a computer at home. We didn't have a computer at home. I didn't have one until I was in college. And so just thinking about what the, the ripple effect of the loss of job or the furlough or the decrease in income or 
rearranging schedules and children not being of age to be able to be at home by themselves or having the necessary resources. Um, and, and frankly, kids teaching themselves, let's just be honest. The teachers are there, they're present, they're trying to guide them, but kids teaching themselves. I mean, I have a 17 year old. I, she's, yeah, she's 17 now. She's a junior and I got to check in on her. I think the mental health toll for those who were even on the brink, I mean, that's of, of big concern as well is for children. How are they handling these things from home and all of the, the, you know, topsy-turvy things. As adults, we've been able to handle some things, but these kids, they're going up and down, up and down constantly. Do I go to school? Do I not? All of that. And then parents having to deal with it all, the stress and the mental toll that that is taking is also something to be mindful of and and to make sure that you're getting the care that you need in that area. Yeah. In many ways, they called this a she session. Mm. What we tend to forget too, is even as things get better, the lost wages, lost education, lost time in corporate America, possibly have downstream effects, even if we can snap our fingers today and all of a sudden say, let's restore things Mm -hmm. to what they were. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Because when you see a resume with time out of work, um, or if your pay was cut, you know, or I mean, all of these things add up to still not being able to close that wage gap as quickly as we can. And so there's this time lost, it's money lost, it's And then we're constantly in survival mode. I think that to remain in survival mode longer is also a challenge. The one thing I will say about the pandemic is that by and large, most people are actually spending a little less money. (laughs) Um, There's a little less to do on the entertainment front. If you are brave enough to get out there and get on the plane and, and go somewhere, more power to you. But I think a lot more people have been spending less money overall because there just is less to spend it on. I've seen people spending money, you know, at home um, on their homes just because they're home so much more often. But by and large, more people are deciding that if they can, they'll save. And I, I love that for those who can, for those who can't and their income has been sh- shifted, that's the challenge. And those are the ones, the weakest ones are the ones we're going to start seeing how that's really affecting them longer term. We are discussing Women's History Month, especially the last year or two. It has been an interesting time in our history. The 2020 election showed a huge move forward, especially for women of color. More women of color are in Congress. More women of color voted. This is a powerful voting group and is exciting to see with all these wonderful things to celebrate. We also have a year where we faced a pandemic Mm -hmm. where the inequities in society became incredibly clear as women of color lost jobs at higher rates and had to deal with the stress and anxiety of not only caregiving, but illness. Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot to continue to think about as well as celebrate. Erica, it's been so nice to have you here to talk about Women's History Month. Tell us what's happening right now on TaylorMade Budgets. What's going on with you? 
Oh, awesome. Thank you. Um, I have two things that I've been working on. One is a free challenge, a free seven-day money challenge. It is what I call your quick shot, your jump shot to um, get your finances in order within seven days, a few little tips that'll help you maneuver. Um, If you're wanting to do a deep dive on your money, the other thing that you can do is go beyond the budget. That is my course that I have. And it helps you go from your goals to your budget to your debt. And then beyond, of course, where where do you go next? I think a lot of times we think that the getting out of debt is the end result. And really, we want to go beyond. We want to have a future and, and make certain that we are creating that and actively pursuing it. So those are two things to check out on my website, uh, tailormadebudgets.com. Eric Young of TaylorMade Budgets. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.